Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Talking the Outsider. I am your host, Kente, all the way live from Los Angeles, California, and I'm so happy to be here with you today. And I'm here with my beautiful, talented co-host, the one and only Jen. Hey, how is everything going? I'm super excited about Talking the Outsider. This is one of those series that I feel like it's such a sleeper in the sense that people, a lot of people don't know about it, or if they do know about it, they do not Angeles, know how California, good it is. And, I'm, and I'm so happy to be you here and I with to you be able to discuss today. This is really kind of awesome. There's so much in this series that I definitely want to share. And the pilot episode of this is, I think, one of the best uh, in terms of Stephen King adaptations that I've seen in first. Ever. So I'm really super excited to have a, a chance to discuss it. And and also, you know, something interesting that I was just thinking about because we had uh, done kind of a recap of the book, something that I just thought about was how incredibly um, monumentous it must have been to take this on. When I think about how big the idea is behind um, the the what's happening um, and how they decided to adapt it. I have to say, I'm really impressed with a lot of people that are involved in the series and I've got to give a huge shout out to Jason Bateman because what vision behind seeing this that he thought was here in terms of potential is uh, it, it was quite a good foresight for him to have. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, Jason Bateman, um, Richard Price, uh, they have such a great, um, you know, cast of talent that uh, is, you know, helping out with putting this show on. And I just well, think... Well, this executive producer, I just feel like he's got, you know, clearly he saw some good vision with this and he was right on with it. Yes. So we're going to definitely talk about that. This is episode two because we we reviewed the whole book. So just if, in case you haven't heard, you can go back and listen to our review of the book. Uh, we talk about it in a general sense for the first half. And then we warn you when we start going into the spoiler part of the book. So you can, even if you haven't uh, read the book, you can at least listen to the first half of that podcast and, and find out about the book. Now we've finished the book, both of us. So we know we're well versed in it. We're not going to spoil you, uh, and um, some things are not spoilers anyway. So uh, because the book and the TV series definitely is uh, changes. Up. So uh, let me let me first start off by talking about, you know, you know, HBO has a great track record of, of programming and they've you know, they have some really good procedural stuff. Uh, you have True Detective. You had the, the Night of. You have you know some really good programs. So when I heard that HBO was in fact going to be the uh, the network that was going to carry this material, um, I got excited. What about you? Definitely, and uh, you know something that I know HBO does is they uh, vet their series fairly extensively before uh, anything even hits the screen, and th- to sort of again this goes back to what i was talking about with jason bateman the the idea that they had such uh a a really big 
sort of involvement from people says to me that there was uh, not just a big hype about it, but that there was some real quality behind what was happening. One thing also that I think HBO allows for us to sort of see and do that other uh, networks or platforms might not do is they HBO is never afraid to sort of like take a chance on some things. I mean, as much as, you know, from a financial perspective, they want to make money. Narratively, they are not afraid to take chances in a lot of ways. And I feel like this was one of those. It definitely paid off, but it's interesting because this is very atypical of a lot of series that you will see. Yeah, it's a very, very, very well done. Um, Okay, so let's get into it. Uh, Let's get into this this program. So the book came out in 2018. So this is a quick turnaround. Uh, You know, I mean, and his, you know, let's just be honest. I think he has to be the author that has had most, you know, his work um, made into programming. So, you know, so clearly... You know, I mean, it's not surprising that a Stephen King novel gets, you know, adapted. Right. But I mean, this is pretty quick turnaround. I I, want to mention something because I feel like there was an ambiguity here. And so as we sort of set up what's happening inside of the series, um, this relates to the book, but it also is sort of like what we are seeing on the screen. The, The book was written to take place in 1989. And that is uh, that as we are seeing things on the screen, it is not that that's not very clear to us, I don't think, in terms of what we see in the first pilot. So and, and it may be that they decided to sort of like move a little bit away from that. Um, but it, it I feel like that's an important sort of aspect to kind of make, because in some ways they rely on um a gray areas that it feel like you know why wouldn't they just immediately know don't they have a crime in forensic lab and all of that kind of stuff thank you yeah that's something that definitely needed to be said um okay so let's talk about who's in this series uh ralph anderson who is the the main protagonist is played by the actor ben Mendel- Mendelssohn, who's i believe australian right is he? Yeah, I believe yeah, he's like an Australian actor. He's definitely not American for sure. But uh yeah, so he's the the lead um playing his wife is Mayor Winningham, Jeannie Anderson. Um and Jason Bateman plays Terry Maitland and his wife is played by Julian uh I'm sorry, Julianne Nicholson. You might know remember her from um uh, Law and Order, Criminal Intent. She was on there as well as other uh, many other things. She's a fantastic actress, and uh, so those are the the, the main characters. Uh, we have Bill Camp, who plays How- Howard Solomon, uh, and uh, so and then uh, we have other actors. Uh, as we go along, we'll we'll round those out. So, um, and we're not going to spoil. These episodes will be purely based on the specific uh, episode. So you can, if you're following along, if you've only seen the first episode, you can definitely listen to this podcast. No spoilers about what happens in the future, including 
the novel. We only will talk about the novel as it relates to the specific episode. So uh, much like the novel, the uh, series starts off uh, somewhat similar. Uh, the novel starts off with uh, the, you know, the um, they're on their way to arrest Terry Maitland. And they're also talking with the uh, different witnesses. So um, just to, to let people know uh, what the synopsis of the sh- of uh, this episode and, and the series is when the body of an 11 year old boy is found in the Georgia woods, detective Ralph Anderson launches an investigation into the gruesome murder eyewitnesses and physical evidence point to a local teacher and baseball coach, Terry Maitland. The director of this episode is Jason Bateman. The writer is Richard Price. Um, okay. So it, it has a flurry of witness eyewitness testimonies that put, uh, Jason Bateman's character, Terry Maitland at the, at, a potential scene of a crime. Well, not a potential scene of a crime, but with the victim who is uh, Frankie Peterson, the 11 year old boy. And very quickly we are told that he is the, not just the prime suspect, the likely killer, even though so, we never, we never see him actually doing the deed. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. So let's, let, let's, let's also, because this is such a visual story and because we have, um, something that I think I I've sort of called it gray storytelling and it's not gray storytelling as in there's an ambiguity to it. It's gray storytelling as in you'll notice that it is shot uh, very with a kind of almost gritty feel to it. It's muted. All the colors are very muted. Um, In a lot of ways, it's very dark. Um, There's where we see shadows. The shadows almost feel like they are practically non-existent there's just such a level of um, different saturation in, in the, the color content of the series. The reason that this is important is because as we're watching what's unfolding, we see there are certain splashes of color that we see that become very important. And one of them is in the very beginning, we see blood on a, a smear of blood as the man is walking his dog. We see a smear of blood on a white van. And that white van with the smear of blood is basically then that segues into the man and the dog finding uh, the body in the woods. This is uh, this is one of those sort of uh, instances where if the the level of visual storytelling in cues is really it's very pronounced. So it where I feel like I can uh, add a little bit of information about what those things are. I definitely will do that as we go, but that I feel like that's important because the van is also, that's sort of a big question in the first episode, you know, where is this van even from? Yes. And what I'll try to do is let me pull it up. Um, what I'll try to do is let me pull up. I'm trying to have uh visual, uh, uh-uh visuals to go with what we're talking about uh when when possible okay sorry about that so um uh let's see you said the van right right and it it features prominently throughout this first episode because all of the eyewitnesses basically put terry maitland in this white van the little girl who testifies or who uh comes in for the interview and then the uh the witness who was the shopper also see him in the white man. 
Okay, so here, let me start off by giving you guys, if you're, if you're watching, you can see this, obviously, if you're not watching, you will not see this, but, uh, there's the van and there's the dog seeing it. And there we see the blood right on the outside. All right. All right. So, um, so, so very early on, like I said, we are, we are pushed into this storyline and we, you know, we start to get the impression that this Terry Maitland character is, you, you know, is a, not only a murderer, but one of the worst kind, you know, murderer of a child. And they actually show the, the dead body of the child, which is, which kind of took me by surprise. Cause I didn't expect to see it, you know? And it's a messy crime scene. I mean, right. it, it is just absolutely messy from start to finish. It's in no way can you believe that somebody did this in a way that was meant to hide or cover any of the evidence around. It was just absolutely chaotically messy at the crime scene itself, which is also very important. Yeah, very much so. Um, so... Now, a big bone of contention when it comes to this storyline is the handling of of Terry Maitland's uh, arrest. It is uh, something that is one of the major points of this of the series is how they how they handled it. Um, So, you know, this is him. He was coaching a little league team and uh they came to arrest him in front of everybody so uh that's uh one of the big bones of contention was this necessary could they've handled it another way um what do you think about that decision on the part of ralph anderson to because this is very much a ralph anderson decision so uh, you know interestingly uh, it's a small town and we know that you know anybody who's anybody uh especially anybody who's got kids is going to be at the game either to support their own kids or support their neighbor's kids or whatever. So it was very showy. And the, the, the thing that this sets up right away is that Ralph has a chip on his shoulder, a very big chip on his shoulder. And it really feels like this is so personal. It does not feel like this decision was made in some way to like further justice or, you know, give us some sense that he's a good cop or anything. It, feels incredibly vindictive right now this is the first part where i'm gonna talk about the difference between the novel as well as the tv series is in the novel uh terry anderson i'm sorry terry anderson uh ralph anderson and Jeannie anderson's uh son Derek anderson who's around the same age as the victim frankie peterson or maybe a little bit older i should say um is away at a camp. So he's a, very much alive in the novel, even right. though you only, I think there's a phone conversation in the book, but you, he's never really there in the novel. Uh, on this TV series, they make a big difference. In the TV series, um, Derek Anderson had died uh, had died of cancer. I, I, I can't remember how, how long it had been since they'd been grieving his loss. But uh, he died of cancer. So they're still 
in the grieving prospect process of dealing with the fact that their young son has died. Right. So the, the thought for Ralph Anderson that possibly, um, you know, Terry Maitland who used to coach his son possibly might've done something to his kid. Cause you know, you're thinking this, this can't be the first time, right? He's done something like this um, is definitely clouding his judgment. Well, I, I think there's that. And I also think that there is the, uh, the, the part of Ralph series wise that is um, my son was taken away from me. How dare you? You, you, you just from a absolute moral high point take away the life of a child if it's not necessary in other words like his grief was so powerful so all important and all consuming that he has this huge sense of uh of this is not it not just that it's not right of course it's never right but he is carrying this huge weight with him that feels like my son died and he, you know, he died of cancer. This is, but he was still taken away from me. How dare you take something away intentionally from somebody else? Like, that's how it felt to me. Yes. Uh, and, you know, like, like I said, this will keep coming back up during the course of this series. Um, you know, um, that decision, that faithful decision. Now, one thing is uh, Marcy Maitland, Terry's wife, she is a, a, a rock, right? She, you know, loves her husband. She has a hundred percent belief in his innocence. So, you know, so she's a very outstanding character and um, it's, it's some, so, uh -huh. you need to remember that in the series, Marcy's name is glory. Right, right, right. I'm sorry. They did change it. Glory Maitland. Yeah. So that that because you'll confuse people will get confused. In I'm the sorry, series, you guys. Her name is Glory. In the book, it's Marcy. I I, yes, I wonder the why they changed Marcy. the name. Like, like oh, uh, no. our we'll we'll talk to, with our next character, and they changed the name slightly. But um, yeah. So uh, yeah. I'm sorry. I, I got to get used to it. Uh, um, Glory Maitland, the wife. Right. Right. So. Um, so played by um, um, Julianne Nicholson. Julianne Nicholson. Yeah. Okay. So, and um, as I said in the uh, in the review of the book, if you're convicted, or I'm sorry, not convicted, but if you are accused of a crime, it's always helpful to have the, uh, your best friend be the best attorney uh, the money could buy. And uh, we are greeted by uh, how I got to get used to this one because they changed it as well. It's Howard uh, Solomon. In the book, right. it's Howard Gold. So I don't know why they changed the name, uh, but they did. So uh, that's uh, the um, that is uh, um, um, Glory Maitland. <laughs> as I got to get used to it, Glory Maitland uh, gets on the phone and calls her, you know, her husband's best friend, attorney, and says what happened, and then he starts giving her you know, lawyer speech, like, okay, don't say nothing, do this, da, 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 da. So all of this stuff starts to, um, to, uh, come in. Um, also while we're while they're showing in real time, the arrest of Terry Maitland, they're intercutting with the detective work that was done to, to, to land that it was him. 
So right. we we see, you know, uh, and it's very brilliantly edited and, and shot and done. And all the interviews of, you know, the witnesses and, you know, I mean, from young, old to, you know, sketchy people, you know, er, people who saw something. Right. And, uh, you know, what was, you know, what was interesting about those uh, about those interviews was and so telling was the way that uh, Terry Maitland appears to uh, speak to the people or interact with the people that are the witnesses who have seen him in the white van. And one of them is this little girl. And he tells this little girl, it's okay to cry. Uh, Like encouraging her actually to cry. It was such an interesting character injection right there. Uh, You're right. It was absolutely good. Yeah. um, Yeah. uh, And this is it right here. Uh, the, the young girl who sees him going to the van. Uh, and uh, so... He's still got blood all over him. Oh, my God. Right. and That's, that, that's I, really terrifying. And I believe he says that he cut himself on a branch or something. I can't remember mm-hmm. exactly what his, uh, what his uh, excuse was to the girl. And there's a scene where he drives around and uh, you're like, wait, is he going to do something to this girl or what? You know... And then he just kind of drives off. So, uh, but that, but that is that's where he tells her that it's right. okay to cry. Yeah, yeah. So, which is uh, seems remarkably insidious for a grown up to tell a kid. Right. Sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, cry. Yeah. I make people cry, <laughs> little girl. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so um, you know, so like I said, we're we're intercut. One of the people that we that we come across as far as witnesses is a character um, who's, you know, a sketchy character based on his past. He is the, the bouncer at the uh, gentleman, please. Uh, what is it? Gentleman, please. In this, uh, I'm see, I'm getting confused. About oh, the name it. of the strip club. Right. We'll just say the strip uh, club, the strip oh, club, no, the strip uh, yeah. um, who you know is going to factor in as a uh, important character, Claude Bolton. So uh, he you know talks about his encounter with Terry Maitland, and uh, it's a very weird encounter. And first of all, the fact that Terry Maitland, who's a very much a family man and whatnot, um, was even in the strip club. They remember he thinks he's lost. Like, hey, are you are you lost? You know, right. like, why are you in here? You know, because, you know, he's not used to he, he just wouldn't he wouldn't seem like a person that would be in in this sort of place. So, um, you know, so. Uh, and as we find out with other people who witnessed him and his behavior that, you know, was was very bizarre. But, you know, all this stacks up to, you know, insurmountable evidence. Right. I, I wanted to ask you a question. Sure. What did you think about sort of the, uh, I'm going to put this in kind of air quotes, insta-guilt that people were ready to believe about Terry Maitland? Uh, the, so It's so fascinating to me that nobody really even, like, st- well, at least that we saw, stopped to say, well, maybe he's not guilty. 
I mean, do we really know? Do What do we actually know about this? It was like they heard that he was the killer and then that was it. Now in everybody's mind, he's the killer. Well, one thing I would say is that, you know, a lot of people, if if the police say that you did something, you did it. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like there's people that believe like that. Like, uh, you know, if the, if the law says you did it, you are guilty you know, you are a scumbag. So I think that's where, that's where we're at with that is, uh, people, you know, they trust, they trust the the law and the law says it. And then there's witnesses and people talk. It's a small town. People right. are saying what they saw, what they know, or they think they know. So that's how it happens, you know? So it's not a lot of nuance and people like to believe the worst of people too. It's unfortunate. That's what I was thinking, too. I was thinking, you know, boy, how ready were these people to just sort of all glom on to this idea that uh, even though he was an absolute pillar of the community in terms of being involved in kids and giving his time and all of that, that even despite that, they were just ready to sort of crucify him on the spot because, oh, my God, he, you know, what a terrible thing. And, uh, you know, this this is one of the ways that I feel like the, the show really succeeds. Whereas I'll just make a quick comparison to the book where the book really sort of narrates for us a lot of what's happening. The show obviously has to tell us a lot through by showing us without having extended dialogue, some things. And it really succeeds because there are moments in especially the pilot episode where we are led down these paths and those paths are so revealing that we get an overall sense of what's uh, what's transpiring without anybody having to tell us exactly what's transpiring. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's, that's the difference between, you know, a novel and a television show, you know, and, you know, they made some, some differences on the show uh, that made, you know, great narrative sense for a TV show, I thought. And, some of the things that they are including a little bit earlier than the novel, I mm-hmm. think it works very well for, for the program. So, uh, you know, so I, I think it's a uh, pretty good. So, um, all right. So, uh, you know, during this episode, they all get him in a room, uh, and they start telling him, you know, you're going, you know, you're going to fry. You know, like we got you dead to rights. You know, we want you to admit what you've done. And obviously, you know, he he doesn't you know, he he believes he didn't do it. (laughs) You know, I don't know know any other way to say it. Right. So he's like, well, this is crazy. Right. Like I like and how can you do this to me? How could you arrest me in front of everybody? Why? You know, and Howie Gold is like couldn't you have talked to my client before you did what you did, you know? Right. Right. You know? So, um, um, and I, I think this mm-hmm. is good though, because I, I feel like this is, this is the kind of stuff that lets you know, not just the kind of person that Ralph is, but it also allows for, um, a, a little bit of room for some redemption because ultimately I think, you know, in terms of when you make a choice like that, I think you always have to be thinking about that, right? You always have to be thinking about 
well, what if I made the wrong choice? And clearly for him, he was so convinced that this was the right choice to make that there were no misgivings at all. Like to do something so publicly, you you would have to have such a uh, a strong steel resolve that this was absolutely going to turn out exactly the way that you thought it was going to turn out. So it was that was quite interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, one thing that they do that's a little somewhat different than a novel is when he when Terry Maitland is actually in jail. Um, there's this whole piece up where inmates are threatening him, you know. So, uh, oops, sorry. Uh, inmates are threatening him, you know, threatening his life. And, right. you know, and there's a scene where they're going to put him in the cell with some people who've already threatened him. Cause you know, one of the worst crimes you could commit in, in a prison situation is, uh, murdering a child. So right. of course, even the, the, the people in prison, you know, they don't support that. So, so, uh, that's something that, that was definitely added for the, the TV show is, uh, is that, um, Another thing that I think we have to talk about is that, you know, obviously losing your child in in any way, but definitely a horrific manner is one of the worst things that can that can befall anybody. Right. And um, so the Peterson family um, who lost their 11 year old you know, son and brother they are obviously having a very tough time with all of this. And, um, so, uh, you know, we, we get some insight into how they're dealing with it. And the mother, this is beautiful scene where the mother just loses it and takes a, a, a bat and just starts just busting up her, her own home, you know? And, uh, I thought that was very well, well done and it just shows you know the 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 toll that is put on to this family i'll uh, i'm going to interject something uh sort of from an anecdotal uh standpoint i um actually lost a child myself and there is nothing on this planet that even comes close to that kind of grief it is an absolute uh, sort of all-consuming feeling, and no matter how much time goes by, it's there. That piece is always like super sharp in your mind, and so from a purely empathetic level, there is something so absolutely profound about that scene because it really encapsulates just the level of grief that these people are feeling. It is not. It's, it's anger that you don't have any way to fix the situation. It's uh, this overwhelming grief. And it is uh, this sense of absolute frustration that there is just, there's sort of like nothing in the world that will bring back that peace. And so the they're both from, I think, Ralph's point of view and from uh, his mom's point of view, there is just something very powerful about those two things being uh said right up front in this first episode yeah grief is a a major part of of this series and how people deal with it and the effects and the the deafening 
um, effects that on a town, on a family, um, and then our main, you know, protagonist is dealing with grief, you know, before yeah. everything even starts. So unresolved grief, unresolved Not grief. Just yeah, because you know sometimes you can actually get to the point where your grief is. It, it, it's a part of you. You assimilate it into who you are. But we can clearly see that Ralph has not come to grips with it yet. Yes. So um, what ends up happening is it becomes like an arms race of there becomes this arm race of who's going to get to the evidence first. Right. And how, Howard Solomon hires a guy named Alec Pelly who's a former detective, who's now a private investigator. Uh, this is this character right here. And uh, he uh, starts to try to find some esculpatory evidence. And, um, you know, he's a very good, he's very good at what he does. And, yep. uh, you know, both the detect, the um, police detectives, as well as the, uh, the, uh, um, sorry, the, the DA's office, uh, are engaged in this kind of battle to try to find out, you know, where some more evidence, you know, that can go either way. Um, so this episode, uh, and like I said, we're going to go into a lot of details, but uh, when it comes to this TV show, but um, the Terry Maitland says, I could not have committed this crime because I was in this city called Cap City, which was, which is like 70 miles away. Right. You know, that's his alibi. So now he has to, you know, they have to prove, even though he has witnesses, that he is, uh, you know, there's witnesses, there's three teachers that he went on on a teacher's conference. That's something they changed too. In the novel, they go to see uh, um, Harlan Coben, uh, do a lecture. This one, they changed it to like a, a teacher's conference. And uh, so when uh, Alec Pelly starts looking for any kind of evidence that he was really there in Cap City when this murder murder happened, he's able to find a video of, um, of Terry Maitland uh, at the same time this murder is happening, 70 miles away, asking a question uh, at this conference. Right. So that proves that he was somewhere else, not where this murder was happening. And and let's not forget that Ralph is under the impression that Terry, uh, at least in terms of the evidence at first with the messy crime scene and the not trying to hide anything and everything all being out in, in public. And that one video of him at the train station where he, it looks like he's turning uh, to look at the camera all feels like uh, to Ralph, I, I think in, in, in terms of what he's experiencing that Terry is somehow saying, you know, F you. Right. And, and I feel like Literally. that's sort of, what, yeah. And I feel like that's sort of what propels him into this, you know, absolute sort of nightmare fuel about proving that, you know, ha ha ha, I got you. Yeah, literally, F you, um, which is uh, right here. <laughs> so uh, in the, that's in the surveillance camera footage. So, yeah. All right. So I, I think, you know, um, 
I think we we talked enough about what happens in this episode, and we'll obviously go on with more and more. So my question to you is, uh, how do you feel about this first episode? Do you do you feel like you did an adequate job of getting you into it? Was there enough there there for you? Well, uh, personally, of course, I've got a vested interest in this, and I had from the very moment that I heard that this had been an announced project. But the, just in terms of what I saw, I have to say one thing quickly about the production values, and that, and this is part of what drew me in, that it is such a, uh, it, it feels like there is always kind of this background noise that's happening, and it's a droning kind of background noise in Outsider, which is very dreadful. It's it just it has this almost like um, a, a sense of rubbing something raw constantly, and it's interesting that that they chose to do this number one without much color saturation and number two with sort of the backgrounds always being so um washed out and dark because in some ways that might have turned people off but in this case it is so instantly compelling because you know that there is something so sinister happening that it almost feels like at all times we are basically maybe not seeing things through the monster's eyes, but we're understanding it from the monster perspective, like, you know, or, or a supernatural perspective, I should say, because the world is muted, because the world is sort of not the way that it should be. We can see that the world isn't the way it should be. So I think that they did a great job of sort of sucking us in. Yes. It's definitely sucked me in. So glad uh, that we got this first episode out the way. And the name of the episode was called Fish in a Barrel. Uh, we will be covering episode two, which is called Roanoke. Um, and uh, so I think this is a good start. So let's do this. How can we get you in social media and all that good stuff? Mm-hmm can find me on Twitter at following bliss one. You can also check out my websites. Uh, critical is moving to studio white wolf.com. And you can always find new recipes at movies, make the meal.com. All right. And you can follow me at Kente F on Twitter at Kente Ferguson on Instagram. And of course the website is indie radio.org. That's I N D Y radio.org. We'll be back. Uh, right away with uh, episode two of the series. This is episode three of our podcast. So, uh, you know, um, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Yeah, thank you. Brain fart. <laughs> <laughs> thank. Hey, I'm glad that I brought you along. 